It's no secret that young people are leaving the church at an alarming rate. Something like 59% of young people make the decision to turn their back on religion in the first year of college. And today, we're going to hear firsthand from someone who had to leave the church in order to find Jesus. My name is Justin Kuhn, and this is the Digital Missions Podcast. Yo, Justin here, and you are listening to the Digital Missions Podcast, where our goal is to equip pastors like you with the tools needed to reach your first million people with the gospel. And here's the thing. Today, we're going to start by taking a few steps back. After all, what's the point of reaching millions with the gospel if we can't even keep the ones that we have? Today, we're going to hear from my good friend, Caleb Isley. Why? Because his story highlights the very real way that we as a community have failed, and more importantly, what we can possibly do to get things right. This is the Digital Missions Podcast. I was somebody who was going to school full-time, supporting both my wife and I, working full-time on top of a class load, driving a car that would literally stop working like every couple weeks and just strand us in the road. And when I would get to church, they would be like, why don't you do more? Why aren't you helping us? And I just wanted to cry. Like I got so angry so many times because it was like just the sheer like... People hadn't taken the time to understand how much work it was taking to just be there, to not use Sabbath to sleep, you know, to show up on the one day that I have where I don't work and invested in the church instead of my family. Um, You know, it was creating this tension. And then beyond that, when I extended it to other people, I was like, okay, if I step out of this and I just look at what we're doing, you know, on paper, how are we helping or getting to know anybody around us? You know, we would hold evangelistic series. We would do things like health classes, stop smoking seminars, all these different things. But our process was always the same. It was just like, hey, you know, Barbara knows a guy who's smoking and he's willing to come here. Okay, great. We have one, you know, let's pass out flyers. So we just litter our neighborhood with flyers. I'm not saying this never works. I'm just saying that the process that I saw repeated over and over and over had as little to do with relationship as possible. And that was a sticking point for me so bad. And the the final straw was, you know, we got this, this new pastor. The church hadn't had a pastor in a long time. Pastor came in, well-meaning guy, but at the time, like we could barely afford groceries, right? And this pastor invites us out for pizza and he's like, hey, I don't know you guys well. Would your wife and I like to join us for pizza? And I'm like, yeah, especially if you're paying. Like, yes, anytime. Like, let's do this. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So text me and we'll set it up. Texted him, no response. All right, so weeks go by. I see him again. I get the exact same invitation. I'm walking out of the church. He's doing the handshake thing with all the people that showed up. And he's like, hey, when are we going to go to pizza? And I was like, when do you want to go to pizza? Give me a time. Let's nail it down right now. He's like, I'll give you my number. He gave me his number again. I kid you not. Um, I texted him again, no response. When I got the third invitation in the exact same voice, in the exact same words, I just was like, all right, something it's like, I don't, I don't really want to do Groundhog Day. You know, I don't really want to just keep repeating these motions that are so empty and and so loveless, um, I don't feel seen as a person. I don't feel valued. There's no friendship or relationship here. You know, the Bible is talking about like, like-minded believers. It's talking about community. It's talking about fellowship. None of that was really happening. Programming was happening. Singing was happening. Reading the Bible was happening. But relationship, at least as far as I was concerned, was just gone. There were people who had relationships with each other, 
people who had known each other a long time, right? You had kind of the music groups who hung out and, and practiced together and they got to know each other. But for the visitor and for the newcomer, absolutely not. This was not a place that was postured toward us and toward them. So that was really uh, the beginning where, you know, I, some people have these stories about like finding God again. I never lost God. I'd never once stopped believing in God. And honestly, I never stopped being Adventist. I still kept my Sabbath on my own. I still kind of, you know, followed the teachings that I had been raised with that I learned for myself to believe. But my question was like, why go to church? Like, I don't need church to get to know God. And if they're not doing what I think, what I feel like, you know, is what God asks of us, like, what's the point of it? I can do more if I don't spend that time going to a program and going and ministering in my community, going help, you know, helping feed the homeless people in Charleston. Like, there's, there's so much to do. And there's so many ways to find God outside of church. And church was actually acting as a barrier to my relationship with God. You know, your story against the backdrop of the post-COVID world. Uh, churches are scrambling everywhere. How do we get people to come back? How do we get them to return back to church? Sure, maybe we can shame them and say, oh, online services are not the same. And in many senses, they're probably true. But I think what your story unveils is, well, what is the real value of community if you're not seen? What is the value of fellowship if you're ignored or if you're not actually, uh, you know, your presence isn't actually valued? And so I think that this is why for, for, for me... Like when I think about the way that the church can get involved with the community, you're one of the people that I go to first. When, I, when, I, when I'm trying to challenge my conception of what does church mean? What does it mean to be in fellowship with other believers? And even when it comes to like the online world, okay, cool. We're gonna create a, an online experience. What is this experience about? What's the purpose of this online experience? If we're gonna do digital community in some meaningful sense, like, how is this going to be substantive? How is this not just going to be the exchange of information? And I think for those of us who are in ministry, digital or otherwise, this is a question that we really got to wrestle with. So let's talk about this because um, one of the things that I've seen time and time again with your ministry is the way that you're able to bring people together. Probably, not even probably, definitely because of your experience feeling left alone, it seems as though that you're motivated to make sure that no one is ever unseen. Is this true? Yeah, I, I would say you're onto something there. You know, I've been gifted and cursed with, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that meme of the the guy from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, where he's got like a detective board and he looks all crazy and there's like strings between different pictures of people. I have that brain for networks of people. And so, you know, I am always kind of looking for the underrepresented, the unrepresented, the unheard people around me and finding ways to tie them to someone else, something else to, I mean, in church or not, like I do this, I kid you not, in my town also, like I will meet somebody and they're like a senior citizen and they're like, I don't have any friends. I just moved here from this other place. And I'm like, have you tried the pickleball club? Because there's a ton of people doing that. You know, <laughs> I'll actually like go with them and and say like, well, I don't know how to sign up. Okay, let's figure it out. Like we just walk over and we see a number and we call the number and, you know, like this is, this is just a habit of my life to connect people. And I think I've seen such beautiful results when you dovetail media and digital media with that genuine heart for, for real relationships and community building. I don't think they're mutually exclusive at all. I think this is a powerful tool that we can use to connect people. So 
when you see social media, you see it as an integral part of life. And then as I see it in your ministry, your your attempt, and I, and I think that this is something that's relatable for a lot of pastors, a lot of churches, they want to use social media to benefit their local community. There's there's a very, very much a sense in which if I don't see results locally, then I don't really understand why I should be doing it. Because what I care about is my community. What I care about is my people. Even if I haven't met them, I care about my neighbors. That's what I want to see impacted. And one of the things that I'm really excited to explore with you is that there's a handful of stories that you've had the privilege of participating in firsthand. Uh, a lot of these surround crisis, and that's okay. We're going to look at that. But I'd love for you to talk us through some of the stories of how you're seeing digital being the catalyst for in-person transformation and community building and all the other things that you know all of us want. Yeah, it's kind of a myth that you know, the physical world and the digital world are separate. Um, I don't know that I really think that that's true or helpful in how we think about life. Um, I think integrating them both in healthy ways is kind of like the most powerful way that we can go about um, connecting with people. Um, one of the ways that I always think back to is, I want to say this was April of 2020. I mean, it's like the first or second month of COVID. Um, we have this place in downtown Portland called Portland Adventist Community Services. And basically, it's this complex that the Adventist Church owns that serves the downtown community, especially low-income and, and homeless uh, community members. Uh, they have a thrift store. They have a food bank. Uh, they have a dental clinic. And one of the things that happened at the beginning of COVID was they had something like 80% or more senior citizen volunteers. I mean, tons of people in that had retired that were really serving, you know, for a long, long time there and, and doing amazing work. But we lived in one of the strictest, um, you know, as far as like lockdown and, and mandates and that kind of thing. Uh, Oregon was one of the strictest, both because it tends to be more of a liberal state, but also because a lot of the entrance of COVID came in through Washington. And so we're like right on the front, the forefront, right? So there was a time when it was not legal for like 80% of the staff to show up. So suddenly they're stranded and they're deciding, do we close? Like, are we not able to, to serve people? And on top of this, because everybody was losing their jobs or in this kind of indefinite period, everybody was freaking out and, and grabbing up the food in grocery stores, all kinds of stuff. So you had like tons more people showing up to the food bank. So this is a problem, right? There's more need and less workers. So one thing that I thought was really beautiful that PAX did was they told their story. They were just like, hey, here's what's happening. Our people are being sent home. We love them. We want them here. But right now it's just not safe. And we really, really need help. And within a couple of weeks, I don't remember exactly how long, but you had a lot of like, like the most amount of first time volunteers in their history. Um, I mean, people were coming in. Uh, I remember one specific person who was way out, like 45 minutes away that would load up a van of people to come in and volunteer. And they filled those slots enough to keep the food bank open throughout COVID despite the increased demand over and over and over. And a lot of those people actually, whether they're there every day or, you know, a couple times a month, have stayed helping out. And so you have a much, you know, younger demographic. It's still a lot of senior citizens serving there. But you have a lot more intergenerational um, ministry happening there. On top of that, um, you know, with increased demand for food, increased expenses are there as well, right? They need money to feed people. So they posted online, same thing. They told their story. 
And instead of making it all corporate, like, please donate to this, whatever. They're like, hey, this is what's happening. This is what we need money for. This is how much it costs to feed, you know, a family of four or five people. And when they started posting that, this incredible thing, I'm, I'm not from Oregon, um, but I'm reading through the donors, right? And I had shared their posts and things, and I start seeing my friends that never told me that they were doing this. I saw especially one couple, I think that, you know, they were in their mid to late 20s, first kid already there, like very broke. I saw a line for like 150 or 250 bucks that they donated, right? I started seeing all these people that I knew their situation. They were not wealthy people at all, but the community was coming together to make sure that this place stayed open and was serving the people of Portland. And so if they had taken the attitude that, you know, digital is not really real uh, or it's separate from people actually showing up, uh, very likely they would be closed or would have been closed for several months. But because they leaned into this mode of communication, the physical world changed. Uh, the people who were there changed. The people who went home with food that night changed, right? So it's not a separate thing. Uh, it's two things working side by side together. And when you use digital media to set up, you know, some of these bigger physical, uh, you know, ministry things too, I think it's just like one of the most powerful ways that you can that you can serve your community. Now, I, I want to pry into this a little bit, and you'll have to forgive me, Caleb, because I know that you're a very humble man and you're not here to toot your own horn. But the reality is you were the one who wrote a lot of those early stories and maybe even still write some of those stories to this day. And the reason why I bring this in is because I actually want to understand what was going through your mind in the process of storytelling and the mechanics of it and how you do it. Because I think a lot of people listening here have attempted to get their people to show up for a work bee or to volunteer for this you know, local outing or to fill in the blank. I think a lot of us have played that game a little bit and with varied results. Sometimes things work, sometimes things really don't work. And it's kind of a, a toss of a coin up in the air, will this actually make a difference? But what I've seen with you is that you're very intentional about how you tell the story and what story you tell. There is a bit of strategy involved that lead to the type of results that we're hoping for. So I'm wondering, do you, do you mind giving us the, the recipe a little bit? T tell us a little bit about how to tell stories that lead to change. Yeah, this is actually a great point and like not offended at all. I actually love this. <laughs> Um, how you tell the story is very important and having other people who can talk about what's going on is important. Um, I would say that that role that I'm about to describe is probably like a weekly habit that I don't always notice I'm doing now, but it's very much part of my life. I find where need is and I, I kind of turn the spotlight toward it, right? And because of my relationships and because I've built up kind of community credibility with people, People know in general that I'm not just ever going to share something to take their money. Like, they know what I'm about, right? There's trust there. And so, yeah, looking back, I didn't think about this before our interview, but I did do a lot of legwork. You know, I, I showed up. I was one of the younger people showing up, passing out food boxes, putting it together food boxes when there was a shortage. Uh, my wife and I both went many, many times uh, early on just to make sure that they had enough help. But when I went about telling the story, there were a couple of important things. Number one, um, you know, I tried to get away from the corporate and the religious uh, way that some of this information is shared. I think when you are continually surrounded by like-minded people, and when you spend a lot of time with people who share your religion, 
you don't even know that half the things you say are not translating, <laughs> right? When you say, hey, we're all going to get together on Sabbath. Okay, we get that, right? If we're Seventh-day Adventists. But you don't necessarily already know what somebody's talking about if this isn't your religion and your upbringing, right? Um, framing those stories as, you know, always thinking of the community member that I want to show up for food, right? How do I speak in a way that is as clear as possible to say, we want you, and if you're in need, this is the place for you? Everything was framed around that. Um, you know, there's there's this principle about intelligence, and maybe I'm not the smart enough guy to share it, but <laughs> the most intelligent people make things easy to understand. It's not about using big, big words. It's not about proving how smart you are. The main goal is communicating in a way where the person understands what you're saying. And so when it comes to Christianity and when it comes to social media, we communicate in a way that somebody who is not already on the end, is not already part of our church, will read and immediately relate to. Maybe they don't relate to like, okay, you know, God has told us this and therefore we do this, but they will relate to, we care about you. We want you to have supper tonight, right? Bottom line. And the other thing is, you know, I, I spend a good amount of time because I'm physically there looking for things to share. So I look for positive things. I look for powerful stories. I look for, you know, that person who is willing to say, hey, I wasn't going to have supper for my kids. And because you guys posted it and I saw it on Facebook and I showed up, we will have a good meal tonight. And I'll ask them, are you willing to share that? And they're like, yeah, I want other people to find out about this. Or, you know, uh, sometimes I'll do multiples where... I also talked with people who had never volunteered there before. So if you're looking for volunteers, who do you want to talk to? Not the not the boss, right? You want to talk about the person who showed up their first day and really loved what they were doing <laughs> and really found meaning and found somebody to make a difference in their lives. That's the type of story that you really want to share because that's the most like the person that you want to show up. I think it's really insightful because if I'm going to do a video piece, an advertisement, if you will, about a, a particular ministry or a service for the community, chances are I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to look at the CEO. I'm going to look at the head of the organization and we tell that story. But then it does feel like you, I think the word that you literally used was very corporate. It feels very polished. It feels very unrelatable. But when you highlight the story of the exact person that you're trying to attract, then it changes things because now I can actually see myself and the way that I could possibly get involved. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about this from a from a church perspective. I, I love that this is a community service oriented, you know, kind of direction. But on a local church level, what are some examples of ways that we can be be of service in our local community and at the same time share through digital me uh, media uh, in a way that's going to could lead to kind of some of the outcomes that we really believe are are valuable, whether that's families being fed or people's lives being changed by the gospel or whatever the case is. How can we as churches use social media better? I'm going to paraphrase a story I heard a couple of weeks ago, um, and this is from actually a pastor down in South Carolina, uh, close outs. to where I moved from. Yep, yep, Pastor Daniel Hall. You know, he he came into this church kind of right out of, like, COVID had devastated an already kind of sparse church, right? 
there's like eight people left. And so they're like, we need to do evangelism now, right? And the first attempt that they had was to kind of do your traditional model, bring in a Bible worker, go knock on doors, try to get people to do Bible studies. But over and over and over, people either wouldn't answer or they outright rejected them, where they're just like, we don't want you. And he shared this moment that was kind of a turning point where he was sitting with this young lady and she said, pastor, I will never come to your church. And he said, okay, would you mind telling me why? And she said, because all churches care about are building bigger buildings and bigger parking lots. And I think we should sit with that because we get so excited about like growing the family of God, right? We get so excited about like filling our churches and having, you know, the youth back and all that, but we can get so involved in just that type of thinking of like, we need numbers, 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 more, 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 that it it comes out as just kind of greed for people. Like, like it's very cold. It's, it's lacking love and relationship. It's just like, great. We got a number next, a number next, not my job to actually know them, you know, not my job to actually have a relationship with anybody just to get them in the pew, just to get them paying their tithe. And I think that's like very transparently not of God. <laughs> Um, when we don't actually care about the people that we're bringing in, or we care about them in theory, but not personally, uh, that's a real problem. And it's it's really not how Jesus went about his life. Uh, Jesus stops over and over and over in the Gospels and spends time with people. And his friends are always telling him not to spend time with the people that he spends time with. <laughs> uh, so So one of the things that really stood out to me about this story was that they decided to do something different. Um, instead of just kind of doing the traditional model, they organized uh, what they called 10 Days of Compassion for their city. They took each day and they did something that would directly meet a felt need. Uh, they did a diaper drive. They did haircut, free haircuts for people that couldn't afford them, uh, back-to-school backpacks. And one of the things I thought was really cool was that they found community members with financial need, single moms, you know, disabled elderly people in their in their neighborhood that couldn't make rent that month. And they organized GoFundMes and told the story. So instead of generally collecting like, hey, our church needs help for ministry, our church needs money for general God's work, they told specific stories. This person lives in this area of the city and they need this much money to pay rent this month. This person lost their car in a car accident and we're going to buy them one. Here's why, you know, and they shared the specific story of the need. And through that, they were able to do all kinds of benevolent work and all kinds of ministry and show a different alternative view of Christianity that isn't just bigger parking lots, that isn't just bigger churches, right? But it was personal help for people who really had very vital needs that would get in the way of them showing up in the first place. By the end of this process, um, not only were they able to baptize a whole bunch of people, but they were able to retain them. And one of the things that stuck out to me about how retention has worked was that the pastor individually calls everybody who has joined in the past year and just asks about their life. It's not a Bible study, not any of that. It's just, hey, how you doing? Anything you want to talk about? How can I pray for you? How can I be there for you? And he individually himself reaches out to people and actually talks with them and gets to know them. There's going to be a lot of those people that stick around long-term because of how he's handling this. And it's so counter to a lot of the Adventist culture that we experience, even if we've grown up in the church our whole lives, uh, to have somebody who really sees and hears you. Uh, and I think that's the key. I think that when you see and you hear people, and when you learn their needs and you do something about it, uh, you build trust and credibility 
whether that person gets baptized or not, um, there is a long-term effect that comes from building that kind of community together. Um, real quick, one last thing. They originally were using uh, pamphlets, right? They were using mailers. They were using paper material. They decided not to spend any more money on any of it. And they decided instead to just do social media. When they did social media, they were able to create their own graphics and their own language around what they were doing. They didn't call something an evangelistic series. They called it a Bible study. They brought in somebody who matched the demographic of the city, the average age of the city, rather than the average age of their church. Average age of their church was up at like 69 years old. Average age of the city was like 43, right? So they bring somebody who matches the target audience, the people in their town that they most want to connect with, that reflects them. And a bunch more people came. <laughs> <laughs> so that intentionality and that thought of the other person, I think is really the magic. And, and digital ministry is just a great way to do that. Um, I'd love to pull back the curtain a little bit more as we're kind of starting to wrap things up a little bit. When it comes to good storytelling, identifying good stories, or at least crafting the narrative of good stories, what are some principles that you keep in mind? If someone's saying, you know what? All right, Caleb, you got me here. I, I want to try sharing the stories of members in my church. I want to start sharing the stories of community members. Where, where do people get started with this? How do they actually build the skill set so that they can share stories that impact people's lives? I think starting with trying to get to know people without the ultimate end goal of telling stories is a great way to practice this. Um, I think that when you only approach people when you need something, it gets old fast, right? Like people don't want to feel used. They want to feel seen and heard. Creating this habit of just, you know, sticking around half an hour after church and sitting with that person you've never talked to. Um, I do it especially with senior citizens. You'll see me, if I show up at a new church, I'll be there 45 minutes after the service in a pew when nobody else is there and just, just me and another person, right? It's, it's habit now. I, I seek it. I crave it. But when you go about producing the content and writing the stories, some important principles are focusing on lived experience over opinion is pretty important. I think that sharing the context that somebody is from and the lived experience, nobody can argue that. So if they're like, hey, God saved me from secular music and now I never listen to it anymore, that could be very true and very real and very helpful in their life, but it's something that immediately starts all the arguments, right? But if somebody says, hey, I was listening to this music. I almost got in a car accident. I was so angry. You know, I went home. I yelled at my kids. You know, you start sharing the experience instead. How'd you get there? Why is this important to you? Right? What is your lived experience? That's the story. The story is what did you live through and how did it impact who you became? So always focusing on that, asking questions, not about always like what people's opinions and thoughts on like, you know, hot topics are. But like, what have you lived through? Who, who were you? Who are you? And how'd you get there? Um, I think that's, that's the number one thing. The other thing is just being aware of your online audience. Um, I tend to produce much longer form content <laughs> than kind of the cultural norm. And so when anybody sits through something, reads through something that I've done, uh, it's, it's extra meaningful because it's very hard to get people to do that to stick around and, and watch a slow piece of content, to read a long post. But it can be done if it's meaningful. Uh, people will stick around as long as there's something substantive there. If someone's wanting to begin the process of interviewing to the interviewing uh, their church members or whoever, um, 
What are some go-to questions that you love and why are they particularly useful in, in causing someone to open up? My favorite question for a long time has been, can you think of an event in your life that changed you? I like this question a lot because it gives people permission to have been someone else. Um, so somebody can talk about kind of who they were before, but it also can go in positive and negative directions. I don't ever want to just force somebody to talk about good things or just force somebody to talk about trauma. Um, I want to set it up in a way where they get permission to share what was meaningful to them. So, you know, answers that I've had, people have lived through car accidents and all kinds of crazy things. I interviewed one guy who was standing on the ground when a helicopter was shot down. So, you know, that's a that's a huge deal, right? But there are other people who the thing that changed them was their first kid. It, it seems like such a simple thing, but to them, it was everything. Like, it made them responsible. It made them see the world differently. It made them take care of themselves more. Talking about change is a big one. It has a before, a middle, and an after, just like kind of the prime storytelling arc. But I think uh, uh, some other questions, they have less to do with like the specific question itself and more just continuing to ask more. So when somebody uh, has a story already that they want to share, for example, they'll say, hey, you know, I want to talk about my parents' divorce. I'm like, okay, take me back to the beginning of that story. And what I've noticed is that people have the canned version of their story that they tell you before the story. Um, everybody has this prepared thing where they think the other person won't listen to them long enough or like they, they're so used to people not giving them the time of day that they rush through this very condensed version of their life. And what I always try to do is say like, okay, so you ended this here, then what happened? You know, take me back to this moment. You said this, tell me more about that. You know, and they're like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. So that was super important. And you start like expanding the story with them. And people, I think that's where people really feel listened to. It's not just being asked a question and talking. It's you sitting with them, remembering what they said, processing with them, that you really get the kind of golden stories from them. But, you know, for just kind of a general list of questions, I would say stick with uh, experience questions, not preference questions. So new interviews, they will almost always ask, what's your favorite food? What's your favorite thing to do in your leisure time, all these like generic things that aren't relational. Asking about experience is inherently relational. What's something you've lived through? What's something that grew you? What's something that challenged you? Is there anything that you used to believe that you don't anymore? What changed your mind? That kind of question. Um, I'd love for you to cast a vision, a hopeful vision for the future of the church. We're exploring weird ways in which community is evolving, uh, where the digital world is interacting with the real world in ways that we maybe haven't anticipated. It seems like the old ways aren't always working and new ways show up to seemingly change, you know, the norms. When you think of the church of tomorrow, what do you envision, or at least what are you hoping for? You know, it's funny when you talk about the old ways and the new ways, the old ways and the new ways are such a, a limited thing, right? We're, we're talking about paper versus digital and that kind of thing. But consistently, people have needed to hear from people in their own language. They've needed to hear from people who understand what they've been through, who care about what they've been through. The internet has introduced maybe a different methodology, but people need the same thing. And all you're doing is going to a different place. If you imagine the internet as a country, it's just a different location, right? People still need to be heard they need to be interacted with and engaged with. 
and maybe it's typing instead of using your mouth, but it's still the same principle, right? People need to feel valued and seen. My hope for the future is that Adventists especially become a curious people. You know, something that, that hurts my soul is how often we go out and talk at people and we try to convince them that we're right and we try to get them on our side and we have no care in the world for what that means in their life and our role that we're playing right then. We think we're these righteous warriors, you know, saving them from themselves. And very often there's a whole world of complexities that they're dealing with that you'll only know if they trust you. And, and if they trust you enough to share them. Um, my other hope for the, the future of the Adventist church is just whether somebody is uh, Christian or not, whether they're Adventist or not, when, when they hear Seventh-day Adventist, when they learn that there are people around them that are, you know, Seventh-day Adventist, that they're relieved. That's not the reality right now. When people hear Adventist, not everybody has a positive view. In fact, one study that the NAD just shared a couple of weeks ago at eHuddle was that most people have a negative view of the church and a negative view of us as a people. I would like to see us reverse that. And I think that we very easily can. Not easily as in it's going to change tomorrow, but easily as in, hey, take an interest in people. One more Adventist that's curious, one more Adventist in each community that actually cares and genuinely loves their neighbor as much as they love anybody else and themselves can truly change the world. Impact that people can have long-term just by switching that mentality, I think is so incredibly powerful and ripples out further than you'll ever, ever know. <laughs> and, and so I would love to be alive to see the day where you can say, hey, the Seventh-day Adventist group is here helping out with this project or whatever. And everybody's like, yes, I love those people. And, and whether that happens in the world or not, I want to see it happen here. And I think we can do it. Closing bits of advice for first time or aspiring or even a seasoned uh, digital missionary, the person who's out there, you know, maybe in their various, various parts of the journey, they may be at the high point, they might be at the low point, they might be at the breakthrough point, or they might just feel really discouraged because their latest idea just got shut down. Um, general advice for someone who's on that journey as a, as a seasoned veteran yourself. I think the biggest difference, you know, we, right around 2015 to 2017, there was this huge boom of like renegade millennial Adventists doing stuff, right? There were like a bunch of podcasts that started, a bunch of YouTube channels, a bunch of people who just said like, hey, I'm Adventist and I want to use the internet and I don't care if I, I'm not going to ask permission, I'm just going to do stuff. I think that most people who are no longer doing this are not the people that weren't skilled or weren't called. I think it's the people that stopped doing it. I think that a lot of this stuff, you know, it's so easy to compare your day one with somebody's day 300 or whatever. Sticking with something and seeing failure, repeated failure as a necessary part of the process, I think is really, really helpful. Always be willing to retry something, even if like you don't have a single like, you don't have a single view. Okay. You learned something, this thing, maybe it didn't work. Maybe it's not connecting. Why? Just pursue those questions. You're not good or bad based on whether your, your stuff succeeds or not, right? It's just a trial and error process. And a whole lot of it is just whether you're willing to stay long enough uh, doing it and, and learn as you go. I love that. That's so wise. 
It was a few years ago that I first heard the phrase, sometimes you win and sometimes you learn. And when I did, something changed for me. I could exchange the burden of perfectionism, imposter syndrome, and the need to know it all. And what remained in its place was the freedom to humbly experiment and grow. There's a lot in this episode to think about. What does it mean to be a part of a community instead of a club? In what ways are we as the church falling shy of genuine connection? And of course, what ways can we use social media to enjoy deeper and more meaningful relationships. But as Caleb said so simply, it is a trial and error process. It is a process of sticking with it long enough to learn what works and what doesn't. And it's to that I want to invite you to really lean in. Lean into the uncertainty and adventure of the call. Lean into the wild ride that the Spirit has tailor-made just for you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Do us a solid before you go. If you haven't yet, consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And of course, share your favorite episode with a friend. And if you didn't know it yet, we already have an Instagram page, Digital Missions Podcast on Instagram. We're posting our favorite clips, little snapshots of the podcast so you can let your friends know.